I'm Greg Johnson. Welcome to CounterCurrents Radio. We have a very special stream today. Advice for aspiring rappers, uh, excuse me, writers. Uh, and we have some very special guests who are going to be joining us. Before we get started, though, <clears throat> let me tell you uh, that we are doing a fundraiser. CounterCurrents, like many other dissident platforms, depends on the generosity of our readers to get by. And a tiny percentage of our readers actually chip in. We're hoping to get that percentage a little bit larger this year, and we definitely need it. It is an economic uh, recession going on, and there's a lot less money going around with charities of all sorts. It's not just the movement, quote unquote. So anyway, we would very much like your support. Across the bottom, you can see entropy, entropystream.live forward slash countercurrents, no hyphen. Go there. You can actually use a credit card. We are deplatformed from credit card processing. Otherwise, uh, you can also use Cash App. You can send tips through Odyssey. You can send uh, tokens through DLive. We will cash those in at the end of the year and apply those to our goal. And we very much appreciate it. And of course, the reason to do this, aside from helping countercurrents, doing your duty, making the world a better place, is it will get your questions to these writers. Notice first. Uh, we will definitely uh, we'll definitely give them uh, precedence. Uh, it's the old super chat method. So again, go to countercurrents at entropy. We're not streaming there, but you can still leave an offline donation. Just hit the green button and follow the directions from there. So I want to first introduce a couple of new guests to the live stream, and I'd like to begin with John Derbyshire. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Greg. Good to be here. Yeah, we've only met, I guess, once, maybe twice, chatted at American Renaissance a few years back, but I've followed your work for years, and uh, you are you come highly recommended as a writer. Your writing recommends itself, but also Jim Goad was talking to me about the experience of editing your work, and and that made me think, well, we should bring Derbyshire on because he's he's got the craft dialed in. I'd also like to introduce Fred Reed. Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, Fred has recently started sending pieces into countercurrents. Again, Jim Goad was an important intermediary in that. And I, I got to thank him. And so, Jim, welcome to the show. Welcome back. <laughs> thank you all. Fred, I, I, I feared the cartels had gotten you. <laughs> Not yet. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, I thought I would do a, a, a stream about writing because... I get questions all the time from aspiring writers, and it would be nice to get other answers beside my own and, and to get them out there in public so I'm not carrying on pen pal relationships with, you know, where I, I write out ideas that go to a single person, because if it's worth writing, it's worth broadcasting to the world. And so I thought I would bring in some very talented wordsmiths and, and get their, their views on these matters as well. So folks, if you are an aspiring writer, get your questions in and I will we'll definitely get to them in the course. A lot of people were excited by this idea. And so we have a few questions already in the lineup and I just want to just want to get started. So the first one that I have here is when did you decide you wanted to become a writer? And I'd, I'd like to begin with John. John, how, how far back does the aspiration to write go with you? Pretty much forever. 
as long as I can remember, um, I've always been writing to any in any outlet that would publish me. When I was a schoolboy, I used to write letters to the editor of my local newspaper, and uh, it's it's been chronic. I, I I agree with the Roman guy who said that writing's not an art or a science; it's a disease. That's 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 great, uh, Jim. Uh, when did you start? When did you decide you wanted to write? <laughs> uh, it was sort of forced on me because I didn't want to be a writer. Uh, my whole because uh, I'm more of a ham, and my aspiration as a teenager was to be an actor. And I actually, I, I'm not sure if you can see in the background there. Somebody took the Godspell, uh, the, the Godspell album cover, and made it Godspell. I was Jesus in three different productions of Godspell, which was this like fruity. This is hilarious. I did Christian, not know that. Christian musical, like hippie Christian musical of the 70s. And uh, on my 18th birthday, I took two different trains up from Philadelphia, land of my birth, up to New York City, walked through Washington Square Park, was offered every drug I've ever heard of in my life, en route to New York University. I auditioned as Alex DeLarge from A Clockwork Orange and got accepted to study with Stella Adler, who taught Robert De Niro and Marlon Brando. And the parents said, nope, that's a fag's profession. Get a job. So I drove a cab, <laughs> drove a cab and went to journalism school instead. So it's it's, it's a much less uh, inspirational story. I remember years ago, Natalie to say the Soprano was on Charlie Rose. I was visiting a friend and he had clicked it on. And Charlie Rose said, so did you... I, I guess you always wanted to be an opera singer, something like that. And she said, no, actually, I never wanted to be an opera singer. I wanted to be a ballerina. But she just ended up being an opera singer. I, and I, I think that that's actually a, a perfectly valid story. Most people don't actually end up in the first profession that they, they dreamed of, uh, or, or there'd be a lot more firemen and cowboys in the world. It was sort uh, of a, a blessing because you realize that you would have spent your life hanging out with people who pretend they're other people for a living. Yeah. And yeah. I'm extremely neurotic. And as a writer, you can be a hermit and be to yourself a lot more. So I think it suits my temperament better. That's great. Uh, another question that I have here is sort of a related question. And I, and I, there, there are two questions that are related. Were you always good at writing? And how much of being a good writer is nature versus nurture? John, do you want to begin with that? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. No, I can't always have been a good writer. When I was a kid, I wrote like a kid. When I was a child, I thought as a child. I spake as a child. I understood as a child. And I wrote as a child. But... Uh, the, the only hint that I was any good at it was when people started paying me for it. That's a sure sign that you're doing something decently well. And that would have been um, the early 1980s in my case, doing freelance journalism in England. So I was almost 40. Is nature or nurture? Oh, my goodness. Um, I have a rooted conviction that Practically everything is nature and not very much is nurture. Uh, that's both an intellectual conviction from reading people like Judith Rich Harris and, um, and the human biodiversity crowd. Uh, but it's also experiential from raising kids. I raised two kids and uh, most of what we are is nature. 
I don't mm -hmm. think very much is nurture. You know, I mean, uh, uh, nurture can decorate nature. You know, you can, uh, if you're a very religious person, you might be a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Christian or a Zoroastrian. But the fact of your being very religious is, is, I think, deep in your nature. And if you hadn't been raised in one of those traditions, if you'd been raised in another one, you would have been just as religious in that one. Yeah, I, I think that nurture obviously has to do with the things you're exposed to. And that has to do with all kinds of historical contingencies. And it will mark you. If you were born in uh, one country, you would be a Catholic and another country, you'd be a Protestant, etc. But you might be very genetically similar to the people on either side of the border. But how you react to the environmental stimuli, those historical contingencies, I think is very much, uh, much, very much in your genes. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Jim, uh, were you always good at writing? And uh, how much do you think was practice and how much do you think was just raw talent? <laughs> I'm going to just skip over the first part because you just sound like a jerk either way if you just if you say you're good at writing. I was thinking about the, the entire nature versus nurture. I don't think, well, I think I'll get into nurture in a second. But as far as the nature part, I do have a reputation as being one of the most thorough proofreaders in the universe. People that have had it read by 20 people will hand, hand me the manuscript and I'll find 20 things that no one else had found. When I interviewed the acid guru, Timothy Leary, he said being Celtic that, uh, you know, what's the word synesthesia where you taste sounds and see smells. Uh, he said that Celts use words like a painter uses paint. So I also hone in on or home in on adjectives to give it a flavor, you know, Play the play the words like musical notes, sort of. Uh, so I, you know, I think technically I'm okay, and uh, stylistically I'm I'm okay. <laughs> I won't go anywhere beyond okay because it it sounds egotistical. But I guess it's egotistical to pretend I'm humble too. So it's, it's a whole concept. yeah, uh, you know, false modesty is yeah. false after yeah. all. So, Fred. How far back does writing go for you? And were you always good at it? Or was there a kind of improvement curve as you as you practiced? I guess the nature nurture question. Okay, briefly, uh, I was a Marine in Vietnam, got shot up pretty bad, came back, spent years hitchhiking around as a sort of politically unconnected uh, hippie, a friend committed uh, suicide, I decided I needed to do something uh, respectable and thought journalism was. I was very young and naive at the time. So I went in paper, the Fredericksburg, Virginia Freeland. So the editor there said that if I made my way to Israel, this was during the 73 war, he had published anything he thought was worth it. And I went and he did. And that's how I got going. And no, I never studied creative writing or anything. I just did it and it seemed to work. Well, that's, that's, that's very interesting. And so would you say that you had a natural talent or was there a, a, a curve or a mentorship process that you went through uh, as, you, uh, as you got going? No, I, I just did it and it, it seemed to work. I think Fred's such a naturally talented writer. I brought him on to Tacky's Meg and Countercurrents. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's a book that I recommended to a number of people. And so one of the people who read it, it's called Daily Rituals by Mason Curry. Uh, and it's about how artists work. 
and I read it years ago and found it extremely helpful as a, and it's, it's full of amusing anecdotes too. And uh, so uh, David Zuddy actually had sent in this question. When, when you write, are there any rituals that accompany that? Any conditions that you have to set before you're comfortable and can, and can get into writing or can you just write? Um, um, Fred, uh, is there, do you have any writing rituals that you go through just to, to get going? No, I came up through newspapering and you don't have time for writer's block or rituals. You just have to do it right now because you're on deadline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that concentrates the mind wonderfully. What about you, Jim? Do you have any writer's rituals or conditions that just have to be just so? I wake up at dawn and strangle a chicken. <laughs> okay. No, actually, and Fred's right. Uh, I, back when I was doing it for periodicals, you did have more time to get it together. But uh, being under constant deadlines, it's a, basically a two-step process. You pick your topic, you research the hell out of it. I guess that's second. That's step one A, and then you figure out what your point is, and you apply your point to the topic and bang it out. Mm -hmm. So you just don't have time for stuff like writer's block or walking, pacing around, wringing your hands. Uh... Uh, the internet, I think, encourages distraction, so it's very easy to get distracted. And sometimes, mm -hmm. I guess, it's a game of how how long can I afford to be distracted. Uh, usually, it's usually when I'm at my angriest about something, something that bugs me. It, it's effortless, and I, I just, there's just no distraction. I, I roll right through it. Mm -hmm. John, what about yourself? Do you have any rituals that you follow? Well, uh, it depends what I'm writing. <clears throat> if I'm do if I'm doing a book review, I have this ritual, which is by no means universal with book reviewers, which is that I actually read the book before writing the review. Um, but other than I find that, that's always helpful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the best kind of book reviews are done that way. <laughs> other than that, not really. I am a I am a little. Uh, superstitious in other areas I, uh, I i walk my dog every morning and, and there's a tree that i have to pat as i walk past it i have to pat my lucky tree mm -hmm. and the family joke is that crossing crossing the street to pat the lucky tree i should get hit by a truck one day which yeah would be uh, just my luck uh but no not not in the matter of writing no i do um uh, I do. I do work to deadlines. If I if I have a deadline coming up, I'll procrastinate and then suddenly dive into it. I, I do that a lot. So uh, you feel that you build up a little bit of tension through procrastination? Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I, I do. Yes, uh, and 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 that's that seems to work quite well. Yeah, have, that, that is that is a pattern of a lot of writers. They will they have to build up a head of steam. And one of the ways they do that is procrastination so that then they just got to do it. They have to be under the gun, under the feeling of necessity. And then it just happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. It's not always like that. Sometimes I, I, I carefully plan things out and uh, perhaps do a bit today and a bit tomorrow ready for the weekend deadline. But yeah, more often than not, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a last minute guy. That's interesting. 
I, I don't work well under pressure, <laughs> I find. And so I, if I have any rituals at all, it really has to be just to clear my schedule away, clear things that are hanging over my head and just sort of get into a, into a state of mind where I, I feel free and unpressured and then the ideas will come and running countercurrents and a couple other institutions at the same time, I'm juggling a lot and I have all these deadlines and things to worry about. And I, I do find that it really has cramped my productivity. The more things that I've got to take care of, uh, the less I can just sort of say, okay, I need to just have, I, I need to block out some time where I can just sort of goof off because I never goof off for long because I get bored with goofing off because I work all the time, but it's just sort of having that little step back, that little period of, of respite from deadlines and pressures and stuff like that, that sort of gets me back in the game and gets me writing again. So I do not do well if I leave something for a deadline. In fact, the longer I wait on something, the harder it is to actually is, is to actually do because the more pressing the deadline, the more oppressive the deadline, uh, I guess. But th that's something that Curry talks about in, in his rituals book. Different kinds of artists use deadlines and pressure differently. Some people work well under pressure and some people can't work at all under pressure. So do you ever have trouble just getting started on a project? I mean, for a lot of people, writer's block comes at the beginning, just not being able to, to get the first word on paper. Camus in the, in the plague talks about this guy who uh, started writing a novel and he'd been working for years on the very first sentence, trying to get it just absolutely perfect. And obviously you can't finish things if you don't start them. And if you don't get past the first sentence, but do you, do you have any difficulty just getting started? Fred, why don't you take that one first? Uh, again, no, uh, it's, it's the newspaper background. You, you just, it's time to do something. It may be terrible. It may be awful. It may be badly crafted, but you're going to get it out and mm -hmm. you can hope that it's, it's not bad, but there, there's no choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about yourself, Jim? Do you have any difficulty just starting? The writing is the easiest part. And since I rarely do just personal essays, uh, I'll gauging, you know, the deadline, I will research the hell out of the topic, everything I possibly can. And as the clock is ticking, I'll read through everything. I'll, and this used to be, you know, a process on note paper, but now it's, it's all digital. I'll put in bold what seems salient and then erase everything else, and then look at everything, take a separate file, write the major themes, and then maybe like 10 different themes. And then I'll, I'll insert that theme to each bold part, reorganize it. So it's ready to write. The writing is a breeze at that point. Mm -hmm. John, do you have any uh, difficulty just getting started on projects? Well, I've, as I've already confessed, I, I procrastinate a lot and I have yeah. a strong tendency to leave things to the last minute. 
But when the last minute arrives, um, yeah, I hit the ground running. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I've found occasion to say over and over again, dealing with writers and just other people, especially younger people that I'm dealing with, who ask me for advice about things or they're having some difficulty is uh, this issue of motivation. A lot of people feel like they need something extra. Okay, they see what the situation is. They've decided what the right thing to do is. They decided what they want to write. They decide what the career they want. But they're waiting for something extra, an inspiration or a motivation that will actually make them act. And my response to that is that you can waste your entire life waiting to feel like doing what needs to be done. If you intellectually see what needs to be done, if you believe that this thing is not just prudent but or practical, but the right thing to do, if you've got a moral imperative there, you shouldn't need anything else over and above that to get you going. And waiting around for that is, uh, is often stultifying it, and, and people can literally waste their lives away. Uh, and when, when it comes to writing, uh, I don't wait around to feel like it. Oftentimes, I will sit down and I will simply say, I have to make a statement about this. For instance, if somebody dies, if somebody dies and you want to write an obituary or a retrospective, it's just got to be done in a timely fashion. And you can't wait to feel like doing it. You have to sit down and you have to work at it. And frankly, a lot of times when I've just sat down and forced myself to do something because there was an occasion that required it, something in the news got me hopping mad, somebody died, whatever. If you just sit down and work on it, it doesn't seem inspired at first. But when I look back at pieces like, like that that I've done, sometimes I think, phew, that's actually really good writing. A friend of mine brought to my attention something that I wrote about Osama bin Laden's death. And I had completely forgotten that I had written this thing because I ground it out because of the occasion of his death. And it was forced out on an occasion. But when I look back at it, I thought this was some good writing. But because you know, I didn't brood over it for a long time or whatever. It didn't get entered into my long-term memory. I wrote it, I got it out there, and I forgot about it because I probably had another thing I had to deal with. But you know, does does the concept of motivation or inspiration play much role in, in your craft, Jim? I was just thinking there's a, there was a columnist for, and I, I hate punk rock, uh, but it was a punk rock zine, Maximum Rock and Roll. I think it's still being published. It's been around for about 50 years. There was a columnist named Michael Board, B-O-A-R-D. He had a column called You're Wrong with an exclamation point. And I thought that was a great title because that's, like you said, hopping mad. It's when I think someone else or society at large gets something dangerously and obviously wrong that it's it's effortless. That's the motivation. Otherwise, I mean, navel gazing, things like that are, are much more difficult, but it's where the record has to be uh, set straight because a car is careening toward a, toward a brick wall at 90 miles an hour. 
Mm -hmm. Or people yeah. are just being confidently dumb. And I, I just take a sadistic glee in correcting them. Yeah, yeah. John, again, does uh, what role do concepts like motivation or inspiration play for you? Uh, well, I think uh, there's a lot of vanity in, in writing. You want people to hear what you have to say. And the more people hear it, the happier you're going to be. There, there's an element of that about it. Uh, inspiration, I don't know. Um, there, there have been times when I feel I've been kissed by the muse, um, but they've been few and far between. Most of most of what I've written has been has been ground out um, with with some effort. I, I, I haven't often felt really. Gosh, that was inspired. Mm -hmm. uh, I, th I think. Um, my the things that drive me to write are the normal human failings, vanity and greed. Um, and there's, you know, there's an element of showing off about it. When I can show off, I do. Uh, um, I just recently, um, who was it? Oh, um, yeah, Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping came to the States a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he had a big dinner. It was a big dinner for him in San Francisco, attended by all sorts of big shot CEO types and, and billionaires and so on. And I thought, my goodness, that's Trollope. Anthony Trollope, the Victorian novelist, wrote a novel called The Way We Live Now, um, uh, quite a very good novel. Trout was a great novelist. Uh, and, and not a bad movie. There's a movie you can watch. And there's an episode in that where the Emperor of China comes to London on a visit and all the big shots in London, all the big financiers in London, including the crooked financier who's at the centre of the plot, uh, they, they have a dinner for the, for the Emperor of China. And uh, I, I was pleased with myself. I was pleased with myself at, at knowing that and being able to draw that parallel and get a few hundred words of prose out of it. So there's 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 vanity and there's greed and there's um, uh, you know just uh, keeping the wolf from the door. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I remember a story about uh, Hitchcock. Paul Newman was in a movie. I think it was um, Torn Curtain. And Paul Newman was a method actor, and he asked Hitchcock, Mr. Hitchcock, what is my motivation here? And Hitchcock said, the money. Uh, he just didn't want to deal with any of this touchy-feely uh, method actor stuff. He just said, your motivation is, is the money, which can I, 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 can I... Can I add a parallel anecdote to that one? Yeah. Uh, Elvis Presley, at the height of his fame... Elvis Presley was once asked which of his hit songs, of which there had been many, which one he liked the best. And Elvis thought about that for a while, and then he said, uh, Teddy Bear. And the interviewer said, well, why did you like that one the best? And Elvis said, that was the one that made the most money. <laughs> it, 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 
Money is not to be disdained as a motivating factor. Necessity is the mother of invention. And financial necessity is one of those necessities. Deadlines are another necessity. And usually they're caught up with money too. Hitchcock once told Dick Cavett, he said, the advantage of being a cartoonist over a director is that a cartoonist can crumple up his characters and throw them in the trash. <laughs> That's beautiful. I love that. And Dr. Johnson said, no one but a blockhead ever wrote except for money. <laughs> well, as the Joker said, if you're good at something, never do it for free. Uh, so I have another question here. This comes from Sutton. Sutton who? With the question mark. What writers are your models and influences? Fred, do you have any writers who are models and influences for your work? I I don't think so. There are writers that I like a great deal, Hunter Thompson being one of them, Mark Twain, uh, people like that. But I've never thought of them as, as influences, just pleasures. Is there any writer that whose style you've tried to analyze or imitate? No. Jim, what about yourself? That's, that's, that's not a very interesting answer, I, but uh, no. <laughs> well, no, but it, it's actually, it, it's a real answer, and, and, it's, and it's interesting in and of itself. Your biographers are going to be puzzling over these, these <laughs> answers and thinking that these are very, very valuable. Um, Jim, any writers who are your models or influences? I, I like Tom Wolfe because, as I was saying earlier, like I, I like to keep it factual, but put some flavor in. I think he was unparalleled at that. He, uh, he, I, as far as I know, except for his fiction, he, he didn't make anything up, but he also kept it entertaining. And I guess that was called new journalism back in the day. John, uh, any, any, uh, models and influences on your writing? Um, well, first of all, I will second Jim's praise for Tom Wolfe who I think was simply terrific, uh, and and who I, I knew slightly. Um, at least I was at a dinner table with him a few times. Um, probably the the writers of my childhood and adolescence. I was a I was a very bookish kid. I was always reading. And those this was back in England in the 50, 1950s, 1960s. So I was reading the Victorian novelists, you know, Robert Louis Stevenson and Captain Marriott and, and so on. Uh, uh, books, books for children, uh, but for Victorian children. And um, all the classics, you know, The Wind in the Willows, everything. I, I read it all. And probably that laid the foundations. Um, if I have a, if I had to, put forward a single name that made the most impression on me as a stylist, as a way of writing, it would be George Orwell. Um, I actually, in my study, up, my upstairs study, I have, I have two pictures on each side, one on each side of the window. One of them is George Orwell and the other one's Dr. Johnson. Those are my literary heroes. Johnson for his depth of insight into human nature and Orwell more for his understanding of uh, modern society. 
and, and of his way of expressing himself. He had a way of expressing himself that, that caught my attention very early. I was in my late teens when I read 1984, and um, I, I was hooked from then on. When I remember when, when, his, when the collected letters, essays, and journalism of George Orwell came out, in in four volumes in what early 1960s i was still in high school and i i, I had to have them um so if, if if there's any influence it's all i i think so in short i, I would say that the, those victorian storytellers and some of the 20th century ones rich the william books of richmond prompton I, I loved those and then in my teens the science fiction that i I started reading in my teens. Uh, uh, that that was those were the foundations. But influence, I can't think of anybody except George Orwell that's had that much influence. That's very interesting, uh, Jim. Did you ever analyze the style of any particular writer? Uh, do you ever try and figure out how they how they did what they did? I'm not sure I ever got that clinical with it, but uh, another name that popped when, when people ask me who my favorite writer is, I have to say Mencken. And mm -hmm. he had a, he had an essay called a libido for the ugly. And from memory, it was, he took a train ride South from Pittsburgh and it was just how hideous everything was. And I'm paraphrasing something like from the Allegheny to the why missing station. There was not one edifice that did not insult and lacerate the eye. <laughs> he, was, he was just great at, at turning phrases. Yeah. Yeah, that is a that is a wonderful essay. I, this person who's now deceased that I knew for a number of years, Raven Gatto, recommended that essay to me in particular by Mencken, and I read it and, and I really very much enjoyed it. So yeah, that, that that one was very memorable. In terms of stylists, okay, I went through academia, I got a PhD. I am also a Dr. Johnson, but... Uh, <laughs> academic writing is is just drudgery and going into academia is designed to make you just sort of purge your writing of style and make it turgid and verbose and not make any strong statements and always be looking over your shoulder and wondering what so-and-so might say. And it's, it's, it's kind of mental torture. And I look back at some of the stuff that I wrote in graduate school and uh, shortly after Fortunately, most of this never got published. Some of it did to my embarrassment now looking back, but um, I had to unlearn all that. I had to unlearn all that. And one person who helped me unlearn turgid academic writing was Camille Paglia. I absolutely love her writing. Uh, she's a wonderful stylist. She's, she makes academic writing extremely compelling. And she doesn't just write for academia. In fact, she writes popular commentary and journalism and stuff like that. So she's a person that I really respected. And I consciously tried to understand how she did what she did, because it was a, it was a corrective to the, to the distortions, the, to, the, to the mental torture that you go through when you're writing, you're know, getting a PhD and, and thinking you're going to you know, write journal articles that 10 people will read if you're lucky. Uh, so yeah, she was, a, she was definitely an influence. Another writer that I very much love is uh, Alan Watts. And he's, an, um, you know, people say, oh, he's a merely popularizer. Well, 
if you actually know the stuff that he's writing about, you know that he's more than just a popularizer. And, you know, you shouldn't disdain popularizers because to popularize something like Zen Buddhism or Vedanta, you have to thoroughly understand it and approach it in a fresh way. And he he did that. And as his writing matured, it started out kind of academic and dry. But as his writing matured and blossomed in the 60s and into the early 70s, I, I just think he's one of the, the best writers on, on ideas around. And he's somebody that I've, I've analyzed. I've tried to try to just sort of get a sense of how he gets it all so lucid. So those are a couple, a couple people that uh, definitely come to mind as, uh, you know, inspirations and as people whose style I've actually tried to analyze. There are a lot of great writers, stylists in philosophy, which is usually a field associated with terrible writing. I think David Hume was a superb writer. I think, I think Adam Smith, Dreyer, but uh, is a wonderful writer. I really love Schopenhauer. I think he's probably the greatest philosophical stylist in German. And Schopenhauer's also influenced the way I write. Because he, he you know, he's got a, a kind of craft that's that's amazing. He uses metaphors to crystallize ideas, complex ideas in a, in a very powerful way. And mm -hmm. he's got like a a rhythm a method that you can you can discern uh, when he does this. Another another person that I've imitated is a teacher of mine. He's nearly ninety years old now. He's still alive. Professor Robert Sokolowski at the Catholic University of America, my, where I went, got my PhD. He's a very good academic writer, very clear, very crisp, uh, and an extremely talented uh, teacher too. David Zuddy has, has also sent in another question, and I think this is a this is really quite interesting. Do you compose with pen on paper or with a computer, Fred? Uh, how do you uh, compose? Do you use pen on paper, or you, do you just go straight to the file and type it into a computer? Into a computer. Mm hmm. Uh, Jim, what about yourself? Do you uh, have notebooks and paper, or is it all onto the computer? Used to be, but I can't even read my own handwriting anymore, so it's strictly computer. Interesting. And John, what about yourself? Uh, yeah, similar. Yes, if if I'm doing any kind of travel writing, I don't like to lug a, a laptop around with me, and I don't have a smartphone. Uh, so if I'm if I'm traveling and, and jotting down notes, I'll, I'll, I'll write them down by hand in a little notebook. And then when I get home, I'll put them into the computer. But uh, pretty much all that aside, pretty much all of what I write is written in uh, HTML5. When the internet came up, I learned HTML so that I could have my own website, wouldn't have to bother with, uh, with editors and so on. And uh, I write everything in HTML. That's really interesting. I I oscillate between writing things out by hand and writing them on the screen with the computer. Oftentimes what I'll do is I have a separate desk where there's no electronic stuff. And sometimes I will have to resist the temptation to bring my phone to the desk. And this is another topic entirely, how to eliminate distraction. 
I, I have a I have a writing desk where I just have pen and paper. I have notebooks. I have notepads, post-it notes, and stuff like that. I'll try and work on work there. And sometimes I will get whole well-formed essays. Other times it'll just be a mess of notes. And sometimes I'll get halfway through writing it out and I'll say, all right, it's clear. I just go and I just start typing it, typing it into the computer. And so, the, but sometimes I find that if I have to simply start writing something at the keyboard, it it blocks me for some reason. And there's just something about the, the hand writing with a pen on a piece of paper that unblocks me and, and gets the ideas flowing. Uh, so uh, it's interesting though. I think uh, I'd like to know what percentage of people uh, of accomplished writers j- just have dispensed with pen and paper entirely. Let's move on. I have a few, a bunch of other questions that are fresh. So let me just go to entropy quickly. Edmund Hillary has sent 120 US dollars. Thank you very much. Mandela has sent 35 US dollars. Clarissa, 25. Thank you very much. ABC has written in. He has a question specifically for John Derbyshire. Uh, he also sends 10 US dollars. Thank you very much. How much time do you spend in your life trying to how much time did you spend in your life trying to prove or disprove Riemann's hypothesis? Did it play any role in your decision to become a writer in terms of perseverance? (laughs) I never spent a minute trying to prove or disprove the Riemann hypothesis. Um, I just thought that the story of the hypothesis itself and the math that surround it and the people who got involved with it was a, a good story worth telling. But no, I'm uh, I'm a complete failure as a mathematician. As I said, I did I was a, a math undergraduate, uh, but I only got a class three degree, and there were only three classes, so I, I wasn't actually much good as a mathematician. Although university math in the 1960s was went much deeper than it does now. Um, but I just thought it was it, it was a really good story that needed telling um, to a, to a general audience, and uh, and so I did. And I'm embarrassed to say when people ask me that it, to date my best selling book is a book about the history of mathematics. Oh dear. I have another question uh, for you specifically, John, from Lovecraft's Cat. And it's a question about, uh, basically wants to know, did you ever read Peter Beckman's book, The History of Pi? Uh, which is an interesting question because that, I confess, is the only book I've ever read in the history of mathematics. No, I don't, I don't remember ever having read that. Is it nonfiction? It's a nonfiction, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, no, no, I, I, I'm pretty sure I never read that. Okay. I, I do have in in my bookshelves. I have a, a math section in my bookshelves, of course, and there's a little subsection there of biographies of numbers. I do have a biography of pi. It's just not that one. I have a biography of Euler's e. I have a biography of i, the square root of minus one, and I have a rather good biography by a, an English writer whose name I forget, of Gamma, of Euler's Gamma. So there's a, there's a little um, 
there's a little subgenre within within popular math books. There's a little subgenre of biographies of numbers. Oh, and mm -hmm. oh, and I've, I've I've got I think I've got a couple of biographies of zero. Zero has quite an interesting story to tell. Uh, there's a lot you can say about nothing. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. Agnes writes in, and she has a question uh, for the whole panel, which is, are there books on writing that you recommend? Uh, John, do you want to begin with that? Do you recommend any books on writing? Uh, I don't. I'm pretty sure I have never read a book about writing. Um, I, I, I have picked up snippets of information that I've found useful, snippets of guidance. Um, Dr. Johnson, for example, a quote from memory, uh, read over what you have written. And when you come across something that seems to you exceptionally fine, strike it out. <laughs> That is a a very good piece of advice that I have followed to uh, getting no, rid of all that precious stuff that I, I I wrote in the past. It's gone. Yeah. 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 Uh, Jim, are there any books on writing that you recommend? Good Lord. It was Frank Zappa who said writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, stylistically, I guess the elements of style by Strunk and White help me as far as compacting things and, and uh, fluidity. But Otherwise, I'm drawing blanks. Mm -hmm. Fred, are there books on writing that you recommend? Uh, Sprunk and White, The Elements of Style. And if I may get on a pulpit for a bit here for beginning writers, uh, writing is, is, first of all, a craft, not an art. And there are a lot of rules, many of them in Sprunk and White, The Elements of Style, that are well worth knowing. Never use cliches. Don't say the tip of the iceberg. Uh, avoid the passive voice. Don't say John was shot by Jim. Say Jim shot John. It's it's jazzier. If you use a real long sentence, follow it with a crispy short sentence because long sentences catenated are terrible for reading. There are many, many rules like this. And if you simply go through the, your copy and eliminate things that are covered by these rules, you will much improve I completely agree about Strunk and White. I think that's a very valuable little book. I still have my copy around. Another book that I, I recommend, there's it's a chapter in a book. It's Paul Fussell's book, Class. And he has a chapter called Speak That I May See You. I believe that's the title of it, which is about language and class. And basically his point is this. He says that, Bad writing tends to be middle class in the American context, meaning that it tends to try to impress. It's upwardly mobile. It tries to impress. So how does it impress? Well, it uses big words where small words would do, or it uses euphemisms, or it speaks like an advertisement. It talks about cocktails rather than drinks, formal wear rather than a suit, Things like that. He uses uh, euphemisms, uh, the restroom uh, rather than the toilet. Whereas he says that proletarian language and upper class language is refreshingly direct because it's less insecure. I really think it's very important 
to, if you want to impress people, don't try and sound like you're trying to impress them. If you want to be convincing, you need to sound, how to put it, a little bit detached. And that is, that's one of the things that I learned from Fossil's discussion of language and class. It's, it's better to use short words rather than long words, but the, the best thing to do is just avoid anything that smacks of trying to impress people too much, which goes back to Dr. Johnson's thing about crossing out stuff that's precious. And also including euphemism and advertising speak. That I think is just grating. And the less you sound like you're trying to impress people, the actually the more impressive you become because you sort of get out of the picture and it's your, it's your message that's getting across better that way. Fred uh, is back. Fred, uh, we lost you there. You're back. Yes. I don't know what happened. I'm going to have to pour Clorox into my computer. I'm very angry with it. Well, every time you go, Jim, Jim's worrying. It's the cartels that have finally got you this time. Uh, so, um, John, have you have you read Fossil by any chance? The the class book. I did read it. Yes, and and by the way, thank you very much for pronouncing his name correctly. Um, I, I I so often hear that as Fossil. Uh, oh, okay. But, well, uh, I, I, I can't I, give I, myself any credit. It's just an accident. That that's. Oh, I guess okay. that's how I was. I heard it pronounced, and so. Uh, uh, I've been I, a fan of his since his World War One book, which I think is simply marvelous. Mm -hmm. World War One and World War One and modern memory. Or, yeah. Or the Great War and modern memory. I forget, but it's a marvelous book. Yeah. And we, I, I was so enthused about it. I, 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 I talked to everybody about it, and eventually I bumped up against somebody who said it's fossil, not fossil, and he was right. So thanks for that. Yeah, I, I, his his other books are fantastic, and he is actually a very good stylist. Uh, I think he's a yes. very engaging yes, yes. writer. Yes. Um. So let me just see. Oh, okay. Uh, our friend Gaddius Maximus, who's a big supporter of the show has written in with a couple of questions for the panel. He sends 10 US dollars. What does the panel think about Substack or similar platforms for encouraging people to write? Um, well, I'm going to go first on Substack because I'm jealous of Substack. I want all the good writers like Morgoth and Millennial Woes and uh, you know people that I read on Substack to just can Substack and come to countercurrents and publish at countercurrents, you know? Honestly, tell me how much you're getting in Substack subscriptions and let me try and match it at least. Uh, so I don't like Substack because it's, um, it makes it, 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 I'm jealous of it. But I do think beyond that personal motivation, that personal jealousy, it's actually a great platform. And it's a monetizable platform that is committed to free speech. And that's very, very important. So, Jim, do you have any thoughts on Substack? Not many. I was dissuaded. I, I was under the impression there was some sort of ban on hate speech, you know, a vaguely defined term. So I've avoided it for the most part. Okay. John, do you uh, have any opinions on the Substack? Uh, yes. Uh, Substack seems to me to be a good thing in, in, in the generality. 
uh, I actually subscribe to two Substack accounts. Uh, one is Razib Khan, who writes very good things on mostly on population genetics and paleogenetics, which is really interesting if, if you want to know what the human race looked like 20,000 years ago, you know. Uh, and the other one is Ed West, um, a British journalist who's very good in the Orwell tradition of, of writing clear, plain prose and, um, and, and taking to task um, crooked politicians and other kinds of shysters. So I, I have Ed West, I have Razib Khan. Those are the only two that I pay, pay to read on Substack. And yes, I think it's a good thing. I'm not sure that we should encourage people to write, though. Um, it's it's not much of it's not much of a living. I mean, no disrespect to the people who pay me, but it's a. It, uh, I, I I get I get the impression people don't actually read much anymore. Not anything of any length, anyway. Um, all the bookshops in my town have closed down. I don't think we have a single bookshop now. Uh, and magazine, there used to be a magazine stand in, in Penn Station where I, I took the commuter train. Racks and racks of all kinds of magazines, gone, now gone. And people say, yeah, well, you know, we read it online. You don't read online the way you read on paper. I'm sorry. So I don't. I think reading itself is dying out. The the up the, the upcoming generation um, get all their information about the world and all their entertainment from you know TikTok and, uh, and YouTube and and, and uh, TV mini streamed mini series. I, do people read anymore? I've I've heard it. Says I think Jim mentioned Tom Wolfe back there. Uh, I've. A couple of times I've been in conversations where the questions come up. What was the last novel you can think of that everybody in your place of work, you know, all the, you know, the, the, the secretaries and the mid-level managers and so on, everybody was reading it. What was the last one? And I'm pretty sure it was The Bonfire of the Vanities, which is like, you know, 40 years ago. Um, now you couldn't get a conversation going about a current novel in any gathering. Could you? Could yeah, you yeah, me? and it would be it would be Drek like Twilight or uh, the Hunger Games or something like that. Yeah, that the, the, there there is a lot of truth to that. It's it is kind of depressing uh, because this is our business, the written word, and. I'm always amused at somebody, it happens practically every day, somebody pops up in my chats, my social media, they'll direct message me or they'll send me an email, and they have a fresh new idea that maybe I should do YouTube videos. And I just face palm. It's like, I've been, I've been literally hearing this for a decade now, and uh, it's, it's just not my medium. I really want somebody who makes good YouTube videos to just go out there and popularize everything I write uh, so I don't have to do it myself. We are at the one hour mark. We've actually slipped past it. Jim, you said you wanted to bow out after the first hour. Oh, I'm having a ball. Okay. One thing okay. I, I wanted to mention, John mentioned TikTok. Yeah. About 20 years ago, because uh, I was uh, 
bemused at the sight of uh, the at, you know the dawn of reality shows in the 80s. And about 20 years ago, I said, we're, we're going to know that the world is over when they start doing TV shows where people are watching TV shows. And that's right. what most video content is online these days, these reaction videos. I enjoy some of them, like black people reacting to Led Zeppelin songs. <laughs> I enjoy that. But TikTok, because Twitter, I, I've noticed, and it's documented too, that attention spans are shrinking. Mm -hmm. Twitter, I joked a while back, was going to be called TLDR, too long, didn't read. But now they have a TikTok is the the video version of people with shrinking attention spans. It's for yeah. people who came who are, would be overwhelmed by watching a ten minute video on YouTube. Yeah. So I'm going to add in Catherine. Catherine, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Am I coming through? Yeah, you're coming through just fine. Okay. Uh, t again, to those who don't know Catherine, Catherine S. Uh, She's the the master, the mistress of the long form essay at Countercurrents. She's done uh, a tremendous number of excellent long form literary and historical essays uh, for Countercurrents, and so I definitely wanted to get her in this uh, this stream. And I'm going to also add James O'Meara. James, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Great. James has me. published six books. And there are many, many more coming, uh, books on people yes. like Hunter S. Thompson and Bela Tarr and, uh, oh, uh, ver various other topics, yes. William S. Burroughs, book-length yes. reviews, people like that. So welcome to the show. Thank Glad you. to be here. Yeah. I have a, a couple questions I'm just going to share with the panel. Gaddius has two questions. Should aspiring writers avoid apps that purport to help with the writing, such as Grammarly? And similarly, do you guys consider it cheating to bounce off ideas, uh, bounce ideas off chat GPT or AI? So why don't we begin with somebody who's new to the stream? Uh, Catherine, do you use things like Grammarly and do you bounce ideas off, uh, AI programs like chat GPI? Well, I'll start with the uh, latter question first, because that's the easiest to answer or the easier one to answer. And that's no, uh, I don't have much to do with AI that I know of. Um, I do bounce ideas off of real people. Uh, my fiance has to sit through a lot of readings and ideas. And I don't think that's cheating. I just think that's how the writing process works. Uh, and as for Grammarly, no, I don't. Um, I like to think I have a pretty solid basis uh, for, for grammar. Um, I do know that going back and reading my stuff, uh, you know, as you said, a lot of it tends to be long. There's always going to be mistakes. I always find another mistake that I didn't find before, but I don't think Grammarly really helps with that. As long as you're going back to read your stuff, uh, you know, you're going to catch a lot of it and Grammarly doesn't catch the things that, that, that maybe you wouldn't, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, James, what about you? Do you use uh, apps like Grammarly and do you use AI? Uh, <clears throat> no and no. Uh, okay. Yeah. I'm not, uh, I've never interacted uh, with uh, the, uh, the AI stuff, uh, or as Catherine says, never knowingly. Yes. Uh, I've never, uh, you know, I know people uh, will 
amuse themselves by uh, concocting uh, conversations with uh, chat GPT or whatever it's called and so on and uh, get it to say uh, uh, dissident rights sort of things. <laughs> uh, right. I've never uh, done that. I don't even know how to do that. Where do I sign yeah. up? Uh, Grammarly, no. Uh, I've never used it. I think probably because it, it, you probably have to subscribe and I'm a cheapskate. Um, you know, Word <clears throat> Word is good enough for me, um, but uh, it does raise a sort of issue that I, uh, one thing I thought I might say if people ask me, you know, what do you, how do you write or, or what do you do and so on, uh, is, um, you know, like Alec Baldwin in uh, Glengarry, Glen Ross, always be writing. Um, and instead of fixating on that one essay that you're trying to finish or trying to start or trying to be inspired by, uh, just do something else. Uh, so uh, I might have like maybe 10, 10 or more essays sort of like flitting around. Uh, and if I don't have anything to contribute to one of them, I'll try to do something on something else. And one thing is to uh, proofread. Uh, you know, I find, you know, if you've written something uh, and you can't think of anything more, you're not inspired and so on, well, you're going to have to proofread it at some point, so start proofreading, you know, um, you know, proofreading it yourself. Um, and uh, uh, <clears throat> that's a way to, to incorporate the idea of always be doing something. Uh, I think uh, uh, Frederick Rolf uh, sometimes called himself Baron Corvo. Uh, a bizarre eccentric writer at the beginning of the last century uh, had a motto, do the next thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, I think, the only way I can write or actually accomplish anything is just continually tell myself, do something, mm -hmm. whatever it is, you know, you know, read something else again, review it again, proofread it, uh, think about the formatting, et cetera, et cetera. As long as it's, it has something to do with your writing, uh, you're accomplishing something. And uh, it uh, it builds up. It works. Uh, you know, it, it gets it gets things going. You're accomplishing something. And uh, so that's that's my that's my tangent. I'm always doing tangents. So that's my tangent on uh, the quest primarily question. Uh, no proofreading is something I do my I, myself. And uh, you know, John Morgan at Countercurrents can uh, testify to how badly I do it. I suppose. <laughs> But, uh, well, at least I'm doing, it. At least I'm doing something, and so yeah. as long as you're doing something of writing task, uh, you're you're pushing forward. Oh, do the next thing. Yeah, I have an essay called "Rules for Writers" where I talk about uh, proofing, uh, and again, you know, it, it's it's you always should be doing something, and if if I if I can't formulate the next paragraph. I'll re go back and reread what I've written before and do a little editing, stuff like that. Uh, but you, yeah, exactly. You always have to be doing something. And this brings up another question that somebody uh, brought, sent in, which is what percentage of time on any given essay is creative work versus editing and proofing? Uh, and I can't really answer that question because there's, they're not two separate stages. They're so intertwined. Again, if I get a little stuck, I'll just go to back to the beginning and start proofreading. Uh, and which means that when I get to the last paragraph, 
the last two paragraphs might be first drafts, but everything before it is basically uh, pretty much the final draft because I, I proof and compose at the same time. If, and if I'm not coming up with new ideas, I'm just reworking old things. Uh, Fred, um, did you, um, do you use any uh, apps like Grammarly or AI programs, things like that, to, uh, to do research or bounce ideas off of? Neither. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't use AI things. Uh, I do have Grammarly, but it's a free I, subscription. I've never felt the need for them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know how people come up with these clever dialogues, these clever Socratic dialogues uh, with uh, these uh, AI things. Uh, I, I just, just, I, I haven't gotten curious enough to, to look into them, much less use them in my writing process. I think I have a free Grammarly subscription and also Microsoft Word is constantly telling me, they're con it's constantly telling me I've misspelled words. And it's also <laughs> constantly telling me is they're trying to guess what I'm uh, I'm going to write, so I type in H E R, and then it'll fill in hermeneutics, and it's like, oh, okay, uh, you, you, th this program knows me. Maybe I am interacting unknowingly with <laughs> AI. I don't know about that. Um, uh, this this reminds me of the uh, somebody some joke or comment that somebody made about uh, the writers for uh, Descent magazine. If anyone remembers Descent. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that left-wing uh, sort of journal. Uh, he, he said, he, he asked one of the writers, uh, do you have a, a separate key on your typewriter for words like alienation and proletariat? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, so you just type in PR and it fills in proletariat. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. So you type exactly. in alienation, existential, everything yeah, yeah. comes out. Um, I have a, a question here, which I, I just love. Uh, do you write on drugs? And my <laughs> assumption is that that would include things like caffeine, nicotine, and alcohol, as well as uh, the more exotic stuff. Uh, so anyway, I want to go to John first. John, do you write on drugs? And if so, which drugs? Uh, no, yeah. nothing stronger than Tylenol. I have occasionally in my life, uh, half a dozen times, I have written something under the influence, usually just alcohol, and uh, and then been embarrassed to find when I sobered up that it was absolutely awful. Um, uh, I wouldn't rule out that it might be different for other people. The uh, the Irish playwright, Brendan Behan, um, famously described him well famous in ireland famously described himself as a drinker with a writing problem <laughs> uh, and uh, he did pretty well but no i can't i can't do anything when i'm when i'm under the influence of anything uh, and, I, and i'm i'm wise enough to know that jim what about yourself do you write <laughs> on drugs or have you ever written on drugs <laughs> Uh, I, as far as alcohol goes, I quit when I was 20, so I've never had anything published. I'm not sure I did much writing at that point anyway. Um, over the years, I had a, a marijuana problem. I've written a lot of things on weed, but I don't even do caffeine anymore. I've had so many health scares that I write entirely sober. And uh, <laughs> I, mean, I, was, I was telling somebody uh, earlier this week, I think I was telling Greg, uh, I was going through a, a medical procedure. They gave me an Ativan. And I was Dean Martin all of a sudden. I was hugging people, I was tipping waitresses. 
I do know. Crooning? Were you crooning? I, I, I was crooning like Dion DiMucci. But uh, I, I remember being under the impression that sometimes I was funnier. My writing was funnier on marijuana, but that could be the, the marijuana. <laughs> Catherine, uh, what's your poison, if any? Uh, well, I always have caffeine, usually. Um, and I don't think I've ever written anything truly drug. I have written in college stuff when I was maybe, you know, not not entirely sober. As for the stronger drugs, I, I can honestly say that I've never taken anything uh, stronger than caffeine and alcohol. Uh, so not usually except for caffeine, which I don't I don't consider to be to be a drug. But that's because I drink it. So <laughs> <laughs> James, what about yourself? Uh, <clears throat> writing on drugs. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a, a postmodernist named Sadie Plant, Plant. Who has an anthology called Writing on Drugs. Writing yeah. on Drugs, yeah. Uh, Jack Donovan said that reading my work was like a psychedelic experience. But um, like a lot of people who produce stuff like that, I don't actually do anything like that. Mm -hmm. uh, the... Uh, I just, you know, I, I, you know, I drink, uh, but I've never written, written anything on drunk or anything like that. I tend to write things in the morning when I wake up, even before I have any coffee. Mm -hmm. uh, so that I don't know if, if, you know, a good night's sleep <laughs> counts as, as a drug or an induction, but that, that seems to be it. I don't take anything for it. Um, interestingly, uh, Hunter Thompson, uh, despite, uh, the nature of his writing and the things he writes about uh, never used any, would never consumed any, did anything more than uh, drink beer uh, when writing. Interesting. Uh, so I had no idea. On drugs, although he, yeah, yeah. Eventually he became uh, addicted to cocaine and that actually uh, destroyed his uh, writing career. Uh -huh. um, but when he was actually producing stuff, he never drank anything more than beer or did anything it more than beer. Interesting. Um, you know, I, I drink coffee. Uh, I, I'm a caffeinated writer. I can't really do anything before my first cup of coffee kicks in. I have used nicotine way back when, when I was an undergraduate, because I found that nicotine would help me focus. And so I you know, have a couple puffs of, on a cigarette and it would just get me focused on writing. And that was a, actually extremely valuable. And I know why a lot of writers can you know, just become chain smokers because it really can sharpen your focus and uh, just clear away a lot of background noise and clutter. I never got addicted to nicotine though. And I never actually got, got through a whole pack of cigarettes before mm -hmm. losing it or, you know, you know, sitting on it and crushing it, or they would get all dry and crumbly. And so I'm glad that I don't have any long-term health problems because of that. One of the reasons why I gave up any temptation to smoke is I discovered things like ginseng or Siberian ginseng, Eleuthero. Eleuthero is a really very good adaptogen it's really helpful for editing uh, or accounting. 
which is something I've got to look forward to at the beginning of the new year. Long, long lines of numbers. Uh, I, I find that if I take uh, Siberian ginseng, that really helps me focus in on, on tasks like that. Another thing that I, I like is an herb from India called Tulsi or holy basil. Spelled the same way as the politician, Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, it's, it's wonderful stuff. Jim was talking about how Ativan turned him into Dean Martin. Well, Tulsi <laughs> turned me into the kind of person who would sing in the shower. And I thought that was really wild. I found that I was singing in the shower and I was laughing at a lot of things. It helped my, it produces um, a sort of relaxation plus focus without jitters. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really wonderful stuff. So, uh, yeah, I recommend Tulsi. I recommend uh, Siberian ginseng and I recommend caffeine. Those are the only things that I use. Um, there've been a number of writers who've used extremely hard drugs, um, to actually write one person who did that, uh, and died at the age of 53 of a heart attack was Philip K. Dick. Philip K. Dick, uh, was a speed freak and not only did it kill him eventually, but it made him insane for years before he died. He was literally paranoid and lived in this strange fantasy universe. Ayn Rand, of course, was addicted to uh, diet pills, uh, amphetamines, uppers, uh, and she wrote Atlas Shrugged on uppers. And uh, of course, one of the things that happens when you use uppers is it does lead to paranoia. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre uh, wrote the critique of dialectical reason on Benzedrine. Again, uppers. He was on speed writing this thing. And believe me, you, you can tell. You can't, I can't, you, you can't tell that Rand was uh, writing uh, Atlas Shrugged on Benzedrine. At least I can't, although the vast length of it might be one clue. But you can sure tell that something was something was amiss with with the Sartre. So, yeah, I, I don't recommend the hard stuff. I've never tried writing on on hard drugs, but I've seen people and, you know, personally, not just anecdotally, I've seen people actually driven crazy by stimulants. So it's something definitely to avoid. Um you know, James is writing, people say, oh, yes, it's like psychedelic experience. James O'Meara is like Frank Zappa. People never believed Frank Zappa when he said, no, I don't use drugs, right? He was just a very imaginative guy, and he never used drugs. So, well, it's uh, sort of like okay. what, uh, what Gore Vidal said about pornography. It was for people with no imagination. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was oh. waiting for the drug question, so I'm going to bow out. Best to all. I'm not sure if Catherine is still on. Uh, Catherine told me she was scared of me at, at the fall. <laughs> okay, I hope you're not scared of me anymore. Everyone else, Merry Christmas. Bye, Jim. Enjoy. Merry Christmas. Yeah, thank you so much, Jim, for tuning in. Are there any writers or types of writing that you intensely dislike? John, why don't you go first with that one? Only the obvious, uh, <clears throat> pretentious, tedious writing, uh, such as you get very commonly in academic, uh, from academics um, who may know a very great deal about their academic specialty, but 
can't write worth a damn. Um, but other than that, any any particular writers? There have been a lot of writers that I uh, I've I struggled with. I have in, in doing my math degree, for example. I, there was a, an optional course that I liked in the final year of the degree, which was Foundations of Mathematics. And uh, I liked the sound of that, so I signed up for it, and we went to all the lectures, and there was an examination at the end of it. And one of the set books was Immanuel Kant, The Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysic. And... Uh, I was I was I was not not a very diligent student. I left the, I left that book to the very last minute. So with the exam a few days away, I picked up this. It's it's a encouragingly slim little book. It's not a heavy book, and I had it in English translation. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll just knock this off this weekend. I read the first few paragraphs, and I thought, hmm, and then I went back and read them again, and realized. I didn't have the faintest idea what he was talking about. Um, so I've had the experiences like that, but they're probably more my fault than Kant's. Yeah, the, there's one kind of, there are two kinds of writing that I hate. One is academic writing, especially postmodern academic writing. Uh, and the other kind is sort of snarky, uh, BuzzFeed, Jezebel, that sort of uh, leftoid journalism. I, I absolutely find that writing unreadable and torture. And uh, so, yeah, I, I try and avoid those, uh, those forms of writing. I can't think of any particular writer whom I... Well, I, I have to say that I've grown to hate Richard Hanania. Uh, I find him <laughs> intensely annoying. Uh, you know, but he's the only one who really comes to mind right now that I, I see uh, with any uh, regularity. I did uh, take out a free subscription to his Substack uh, a year and a half or so ago to monitor him. He kept popping up. And um, yeah, I, I only pay for one Substack subscription, which is a, a guy in Japan who produces translations of uh, Mishima and, and other interesting Japanese writers. I, I can recommend that subtext. But anyway, yeah, uh, I, I, I hate academic postmodern literature, uh, secondary literature, and I, I really hate sort of snarky mainstream journalism. And I, I just don't read it. And I, I think, I can't, I can't think what worse hell, uh, you know, w which would be the worse hell, uh, spending all my time uh, with uh, BuzzFeed journalists or with uh, postmodern academics. Thank God I don't have to deal with either of them. Ka uh, Catherine, uh, what, are there particular writers or kinds of writing that you absolutely despise? Well, I have a pretty good example of the snide uh, thing that you were talking about. I just tried, and I knew I shouldn't have tried because I, can't, I knew what I was getting into. But I love reading uh, about ancient history and it was about murder in ancient Rome, which is, you know, pretty interesting. It was called A Fatal Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. <laughs> and it was exactly 
like a BuzzFeed article the whole way through. I mean, Julius Caesar was JC all the way through. Just very snide, sarcastic remarks the entire time. You know, very kind of feminist remarks and anachronistic writing that didn't really do anything for the overall uh, book. And again, like anachronisms in some popular histories about the ancient world, it, maybe it's not, you know, it's it's not all the time so annoying, but in this instance, it was just because of the tone, because she obviously hated her subjects. And I think when you're writing about, especially a historian, writing about subjects and your your hate of them comes out, then the reader is just totally turned off. And one other thing that is not maybe like a specific style of writing or writer, but I found that people can go very wrong, and I'm talking mostly about in books, with their introductions. Uh, it's, it's amazing how many introductions I read, and it's like the second paragraph. It has so many of these little mistakes in it, or things that don't make sense, or they feel like this is their opportunity to attack uh, other people for whatever reason. I'll use another example from, from ancient history. I was trying to get into a book about ancient Thebes. Oh, Thebes, you know, that that's different. At least it's usually about Athens and, and Sparta, but this was about ancient Thebes. Okay, I, I was ready to get into it. But the author spent the entire introduction attacking not, not contemporaries, but ancient authors like Xenophon, like Plutarch, like Homer. It's just like, it was amazing because when you're writing about ancient history, you have to use these authors. You have no choice, you know? And so I think it's that, that hatred of the sources, that hatred of the people that you're writing about, especially historical writing, which is most of what I do, that I find extremely obnoxious. Yeah, I was just, uh, I read it earlier this year, a book called The Persians by a fellow named Llewellyn. He's an academic writer in the UK. And it's just a history of the Persian Empire. And it was extremely obnoxious in the way that you're describing because he's trying to sell this book as like, okay, we're going to have a, a new approach. It's going to be Persian-centered, not Greek-centered. So he's trying to decenter the Greeks from the history of Persia. Well, there's no way you can actually do that. And if you actually read the book, vast stretches of the book are just based on Greek sources because those are the only sources that we actually have for big chunks of Persian history. The only stuff that he brings in that's not from Greek sources are things from Persian inscriptions or recent archaeological finds and things like that, which account for about 5%, no, nah, I wouldn't even say 5%, 1% of the, of the narrative. Uh, but everything is framed in this anti-Western, it's ultimately an anti-Western narrative. He's trying to give a history of the Persians in a way that, that decenters Greece. Well, you can't do that because that's our primary access to Persian history, sadly, is Greece. And, um, you know, and he also tries to, you know, make all these feminist points. Oh, strong women. Oh, and, and what are the strong women? Oh, well, you know, 
insanely entitled, psychotic queen mothers who are like massacring, uh, you know, other parts of their own extended family over small slights. Oh, what a wonder, wonderful system, right? <laughs> you know, it's it's absolute garbage. You know, it's it's basically the same history that anybody knew. Ninety nine percent of it could have been a, a, a history of Persia written a hundred years ago. Slathered on top is this anti-Western, anti-colonial, anti-white narrative and feminist narrative stuff. And uh, it, it's, it's excruciating to, to read this kind of work because uh, they're simultaneously, depending on traditional scholarship and the Western tradition, and then because they're modern academics, they have to uh, express contempt for this at the same time. So James... Right. What about yourself? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we all agree that we hate uh, academic writing in general, postmodern writing in particular. One thing that, that particularly irritates me, it's sort of like a subgenre of both of them or, and so on, is the, the, uh, the need to, it's, it's like the utterly predictable, uh, they may be authentic about it, or maybe they're pretending to be because it's popular in academia, but you know, the, the relentless uh, uh, listing of grievances and things that go without, without saying, of course, among us enlightened people, uh, sorts of things, you know, what, what Orwell, you know, called duck speaking in, uh, in 1984. Um, <clears throat> there's a, I'm looking at a book, uh, just just published uh, called uh, Midnight Rambles, which is uh, a history of Lovecraft's uh, explorations of you know, when he was living in New York. And the 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 trouble the author has is a very good book, uh, and with lots of detail. It's almost a hour by hour chronicle of, of Lovecraft's explorations of New York. But uh, the 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 thing that that he, the author is hooked onto is you know how does this this wonderful author uh, why does he have so many horrible opinions? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but but to, to do him to do him credit he doesn't say well we shouldn't read Lovecraft or Lovecraft should be canceled or Lovecraft is a terrible human being but he's he's trying to understand how a great writer uh, could could you know. Literally, literally, Lovecraft says this, that, that he hopes that, that there would be some way to, to use poison gas to exterminate all the Jews on the Lower East Side. <clears throat> and, you know, years before Hitler, I mean, there's more evidence of Lovecraft plotting the Holocaust than Hitler. Uh, he, he actually says that and, and, uh, and so on. So he doesn't, uh, he doesn't, you know, try to cancel Lovecraft or anything like that, but it's just so wearisome to, to see the, the, the boilerplate. That's the word I'm looking for. The boilerplate kind of, you know, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, he has like a whole half page of uh, Lovecraft's ideas are not unlike those that were held by many Americans in this deeply racist time. For instance, the Tulsa riot massacre, the uh, blah, right. blah, you know, sorry, you know, uh, Lovecraft believed that uh, there were different races, but this was years before Fra Franz Bose uh, disproved all of that pseudoscience and, and so on, you know. And there's no footnotes to any of this. I mean, there's not even an attempt to to document any of those claims. <laughs> uh, you know, tens of thousands of Negroes were lynched in this country. No. <laughs> and, you know, you can, I think even John Darvisher had, had an article on, on you know, the, the actual statistics on, on lynching. 
Uh, you know, and this 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 guy goes with a ten thousand figure. You know, tens of thousands of Negroes were lynched, and so on. Uh, you know, it, it's just irritating <laughs> uh, to see that. And and it gives you you know, future Chinese historians will look at this and say, ah, this tells us what was the accepted views, right? This is this is what went without saying in the uh, in the academic world. Uh, so that kind of stuff is annoying. Uh, particularly when it's in a book that you can't just toss across the room, you know, it's not right. Uh, well, it's, it's especially if it's on your Kindle, you know, you can't, uh, you can't <laughs> hurl your Kindle down in anger. Um, yeah. Like, like the cell phone, you can't uh, hang up in anger. And, uh, yeah. So, um, John said something about uh, the prolegoma to any future metaphysics. <laughs> that was the first Kant that I had to read as an undergraduate myself. And uh, I, remember reading that and thinking, oh my God, I'm not understanding anything. I, I went and I got a key to a study room in my dorm uh, because I thought, I, it's just distraction. Uh, I'll go to this quiet place, this quiet room in the basement uh, with fluorescent lighting and a, an uncomfortable chair and an uncomfortable desk. And I'll just, I'll just force myself to read this thing. And I felt like I was just sort of melting down. And at a certain point, I, I woke up. And uh, apparently, I, I woke up on the floor. And apparently, I'd uh, <laughs> fallen asleep at some point. Uh, I basically, I, I looked around the white painted walls, hoping that there was no blood uh, from me banging my head against it. And I just thought, boy, this philosophy stuff isn't for me. But, but yeah, that was, uh, that was my introduction to Kant. Uh, I didn't do any damage to the book. My, I, and I, I went and I talked to the teacher about this experience. And he said, let me tell you, when I, had to, uh, when I was at Berkeley in my, my PhD program, they made me read the Phenomenology of Spirit. And, uh, you know, I, he said, I, I was literally hurling the book across the room in anger because I could get nothing out of it. And uh, I, I thought, yeah, okay, uh, Anyway, now I pick that stuff up, and it's it's perfectly lucid. Uh, I'm sure, Greg. Greg, I'm sure you know the, uh, the the little bit of doggerel about the phenomenology. No one could ever inveigle Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel into offering an apology for his phenomenology. Yeah, well, uh, I uh, I've, I have to say I've looked at every word in the phenomenology, but I've only understood a tiny percentage of it myself. But it's, it's uh, good. It's good to hit the wall like that, as long as, and there's a good age to do it. And I think when you're an undergraduate, that's a good time to say, okay, I've hit the wall. I'm never, I'm never going to get this. I'll, I'll, th I'll do something else with my life. But yeah, I, I went on, got a PhD, and I wrote my doctoral dissertation on Kant. So I did, I did get over that, uh, those little humps. But yeah, the first experience was uh, mind melting. I just thought. Uh, this is not for me. And it turned out it was. I have a question here from Barney Schlubbel. What are your thoughts on lyricism in your own prose? Well, I want to go to Catherine first. Catherine, do you have any thoughts about lyricism in your own prose? Well, it's hard to be objective about that, but I will say that I like to read out loud uh, my own work, but also the work of other people, because I do think that writing should be musical. 
in a sense. You know, it doesn't always have to, you know, be the same kind of uh, lyrical or musical, but it has to flow. And so I think uh, if we mean lyricism in that way and not maybe overly ostentatious or, or purple prose type, then I would say that lyricism and writing is, is a good tool to use. And I think it can really capture the reader. You do have to be careful with it though. I think, you know, not, not many people are, are true poets. I will just say that for every one good poem that a person has, he has a thousand bad ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do read things aloud just to hear the sound of it. And I, and I discovered early on that that's one of the best ways of eliminating pretentious academic writing is just to read it aloud. And then suddenly you hear it. <laughs> you hear it when uh, you can't see it on the page, or at least I could hear it when I couldn't see it on the page. You, you, you hear the repetition, the, the uh, ponderousness, et cetera. And that's something definitely to uh, remove. Occasionally, I will get a little lyrical and 90% of the time, that's the precious stuff that gets struck out in the uh, editing process. Uh, sometimes I just get so sentimental or self-indulgent, I'll leave it in. Or sometimes I think, yeah, this is objectively good. I, I will not be embarrassed by this. But, you know, a little bit of alliteration, a little bit of uh, wordplay and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, you have to be. You have to do that sparingly, at least in my opinion. Uh, you should do that sparingly. Uh, but I do think the point about just reading your work aloud as as part of the composition process is very important, especially part of the editing process. James, do you have any thoughts on this about lyricism in your own <laughs> writing, if any? Uh, I don't. I don't think there's any conscious lyricism. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, you know, certainly the, the point about it's not so much lyricism, but but not so much being poetry, but being able to read it out loud, which, of course, yeah. is, you know, the origin of poetry, actually. Yeah. So if you can't, it doesn't have to be in meter, but if you can't read it out loud, then, you know, as Catherine says, you know, you're doing something wrong. Um, the only, you know, I mean, the only lyricism in my work uh, would be either the obsession with linking things. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, so that that idea, some idea will start out somewhere, and then suddenly link three or four linkages over into something entirely different, and so on. And that bring <clears throat> bringing those ideas together uh, is what's uh, what's of interest. Uh, and, and the other aspect of it is, and this gets back to the question of how do you write, or how, how does one write? I can't really write anything until I can think of a title. And uh, the, <clears throat> once I have the title and maybe a, uh, an epigram, uh, perhaps from the work under review, if I'm writing a review, uh, and then I can proceed. And, you know, so the title will be some sort of clever thing. <laughs> so I don't know if that counts as poetry, but if I can think of a clever title, and uh, <clears throat> theoretically, that will hook the reader, but but rather than being utilitarian for that reason, it's utilitarian in the sense that it will hook me. Uh, and, uh, you know, at that, that, that point, if I have that title, 
And of course, John John knows that uh, you know traditionally authors don't aren't responsible for their titles or headlines. That's the, uh, the the publisher's responsibility. You know, people write letters to the editors saying, "I can't believe you had that stupid title," and they'll say, "Well, I didn't think of the title. That was the people in the newspaper." But uh, Greg is uh, kind enough to uh, to just use my titles and things, so I'm responsible. So, you know, once, once I can come up with a clever title and then usually with a subtitle as well. So again, there's that linkage thing. Uh, then I know I have the idea. That's, that's the idea. And uh, then it's just a question of grinding out, <laughs> spelling it all out. If only I could just write the titles. You know, Hunter Thompson, Hunter Thompson, when he was no longer able to really write and they would send, uh, they still wanted to have his name on things. So they'd pay him $10,000 for an article and then they'd send an editor out to, uh, to actually write it because he was incapable of writing at a certain point. And one of these guys said that uh, this was an intern's job, right? He'd be sent out to Hunter Thompson's house. And one of the guys said that, that he had like, like 3,000 first lines. Right? <laughs> he had all these dynamite first lines. They were incredible articles. It's just unbelievable things. It's the greatest stuff ever. First lines. It, that was all they were, just a series of first lines. That's all he could do anymore. Was he, he could do the first line. Well, fortunately, I'm not in that position. But if I get the first line or the title, uh, then I have that image in mind. And then it's just a question of grinding out the rest of the, uh, the piece to fit the title. Yeah. That, that's an interesting question about technique. Uh, you, I do have to have my idea, my thesis, fairly clearly envisioned before I begin writing. Uh, not necessarily expressed in a title, but definitely uh, it's got to be there. Uh, the thesis has got to be clear or I, or I simply can't write. But it's interesting that you incorporate that into the title. John, before we went on, was talking about how he doesn't write his, his title. He just lets, uh, he lets uh, editors do that, which I thought is very interesting. Um, but John, you, well, you still have... I was told that was standard, that, that it was in the journalism profession, that, that you, you submit the article and then the, the editor comes up with the title. And there are people who work for the New York Times whose job is to write headlines. That's fascinating. I didn't know that I had that power. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. I had no quite, idea. Quite despotic. <laughs> yeah, this is what happens when you're an amateur publisher. I didn't go up through the ranks and learn that I had all these powers to impose titles on people. Interesting. Uh, I, I, I was told uh, very early in my career as a freelance journalist that uh, authors propose, but editors dispose. Yeah, I like that. That's very good. <laughs> John, do you use reading aloud as part of your composition or editorial process? Uh not aloud, aloud, but I like to fantasy that as I read over something I've written, I'm hearing it in my head. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I do think, going back to the issue of lyricism, I think it's a great pity that kids are no longer taught in school what makes poetry poetry, what are the, the, the arts and the forms of poetry which mm -hmm. we, we used to have to learn. We used to have to learn about assonance and alliteration and enjambment and all these mm -hmm. wonderful things that, that are the, the basic mechanisms of English verse, and they're no longer taught. I, I like to think that some of that has sunk in, and while I, I don't think I'm ever 
consciously trying to be lyrical. I like to think that a bit of lyricism rubbed off on me early in, in life. Catherine mentioned reading works or sharing works with another, her fiance in particular, as part of the writing process. I confess that I don't do that generally. I sometimes will share drafts with people just to, um, to get a little feedback on it. Uh, but that's, that's really not part of the creative process for me. James, what about yourself? Do you share works in progress with people to help shape your <clears throat> ideas? Uh, no, <laughs> um, at least in written form. I mean, I don't, I don't show manuscripts. Of course, we, we don't have manuscripts anymore, although I guess you know, computer files are e even easier to share, I suppose. Uh, <clears throat> but I don't, I don't show manuscripts mm -hmm. around the table because I, I can't imagine people have either the interest or the time. Um, I, do, I do bounce ideas off people uh, from, from time to time, you know, perhaps more out of compulsion than, uh, than a utilitarian purpose. You know, if I'm thinking about something, then that's what I'll be talking about to someone. So, you know, they'll just have to mm -hmm. suck it up. You know, uh, you know yeah. <laughs> they won't on me, they'll have to listen to me uh, rant about this, uh, this stuff. Uh, <clears throat> what a professor in an uh, in, uh, undergraduate uh, program uh, once uh, called one, one of my arias. <laughs> the, uh, <clears throat> these rants and so on. Um, could I, could I uh, just bring something up, uh, or yeah. go back to something? The, uh, uh, when I wrote uh, th that, uh, that long, uh, long, long, long seven part book review about, uh, that book on Hunter Thompson, uh, the book called, uh, by David Wills called, uh, High White Notes, uh, which is a line from Fitzgerald. And, uh, that, <clears throat> that was the expression that Thompson used. To, uh, to describe those moments when, when everything clicks in the writing. You, know, you want to talk about lyric, both lyricism and the question of how do you write or how do you learn how to write and so on. And Thompson was obsessed with The Great Gatsby. And in his early writing days, he would type The Great Gatsby over and over again. Uh, and, and he said, just to feel what it was like to type those words. And uh, that, that's, that's a, an interesting kind of approach <laughs> to that. You know, if there's, if there's a, a writer that, that you want to model yourself on, just, just type their book over and over again. And, uh, you know, you'll, you'll learn how to, uh, how to do that. Um, uh, there was uh, uh, an aspect, of, uh, second aspect of that, which I've forgotten at the moment. <laughs> but I wanted, wanted to uh, to bring that out. Uh, it's uh, in, in terms of, you know, how do you start writing or how, how do you learn how to write? Well, write, write what other people have written. <laughs> it's kind of a, a desperate attempt, but, uh, but it seemed to work in, in, in his case. I have two more questions here. Oh, uh, I did, just, just if I could just, just yeah. tie that up. I just remember what my point was. <laughs> yeah. The other point I had, talking about lyricism. Uh, Wills in his book uh, analyzes, this is a, a brief moment when he lapses into the academic world, but it's okay because he, he, he does it nicely. He analyzes the, uh, the green light at the dock speech at the end of Gatsby, and he 
does a similar analysis of the, uh, the, the rising wave speech from fear and loathing in Las Vegas. And he, he demonstrates how it's almost, almost exactly identical. You know, I mean, this gets back to what John was saying about when people used to learn about, you know, types of prosody and, and you know, anabasis and, and uh, spondees and things like that. He does that analysis of the two and the two are almost identical in terms of their, their, the rhythm of the words and the length of the words and the length of the sentences is as if he had actually, by typing out the Great Gatsby over and over again, he had actually learned how to do that. And uh, so the, the two uh, most famous uh, passages from those two writers are almost identical, formally speaking. Uh, it's it's an, interesting, uh, an interesting insight, I think. Uh, that that's fascinating. Earlier on, I asked if there were writers whose style you had analyzed or you know, or, or tried to uh, emulate in some way. Is is are there any writers that you've tried to emulate stylistically? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think consciously. I mean, I think you know, I, I've written a lot about Thompson and about Burroughs, but I think their influence on me was largely negative. <laughs> <laughs> I learned a lot of bad habits from them. Like, for instance, uh, what was talked about earlier in the first hour, uh, the habit of writers uh, waiting for the last minute. Right. Uh, so have a surge of adrenaline. Thompson, of course, built that into his persona. Uh, and it uh, actually destroyed him. One of the things that destroyed him as a writer was that he, he couldn't keep doing that. <laughs> it just didn't work. You know, he had this persona where he was supposed to be incompetent and late and, and so on, et cetera. And he actually became that. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's an amusing narrative device. But if you're actually working like that, it doesn't actually work. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, Burroughs, I think, I think I did experiment in, in my teenage years with, uh, I, I read Burroughs much too early in life that anyone should. Uh, and this, this book I'm, I'm reviewing about Burroughs, Burroughs and Rock and Roll, uh, uh, any number of musicians uh, are, are quoted as saying, when I first read Naked Lunch when I was 13, and, uh, and things like that, and, and uh, they're all kind of aware that you shouldn't be reading this kind of stuff when you're 13 years old. <laughs> Not 13. Oh, yeah. yeah, somehow they all managed to, and I uh, and I was I was one of them. And so on. there's like a whole generation that that re has read two, three generations now that somehow read Naked Lunch when they're 13 years old, and it uh, warps their uh, their perception of reality. Uh, so that might have been an influence, probably a negative sort of influence, <laughs> I think. Um, but. Uh, I can't, you know, I mean, I just, I just, you know what I, you know, what really has influenced me is what, uh, what Jeff Goldblum says in uh, The Big Chill, uh, when he's reading uh, one of his, his articles that he wrote years ago in the Ann Arbor uh, student paper, he's, he's reading it out loud, and then, then he pauses and says, good, clean prose style. And uh, so I've, I've actually tried to do that, but uh, I don't know how, how successfully, I mean, people think it's a psychedelic uh, text, and <laughs> I guess it's not it's not really uh, that. Uh, you know, my favorite Burroughs book is his first book, Junkie, which is just written in this Dave, this uh, Raymond Chandler style, which mm -hmm. I like very much. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's psychedelic about your writing is not the style, but it's the ability to juxtapose things that yeah. you otherwise wouldn't juxtapose. Aristotle said that genius was the art of the middle term. It's the art of the ability to see connections between things that otherwise 
no one's seen connections between before. And I, I do think that you are really wonderful as a critic because you are seeing these these middle terms that other people don't see. But once once they're seen, they cannot be unseen. And that's um that's striking. But you know, you didn't get that. You didn't get that technique by dropping acid. Um, There's a couple more questions here that I, I love. I, I want to begin with John, then Catherine, then James. How important is it to have a sense of your audience? I guess specifically when you're beginning to uh, compose something. John, do you have a very clear picture of your audience when you're writing? No, I don't think I do. Uh, I'm I'm rather self-centered in that way. I have something I want to say, and I know how I want to say it, targeted to the kind of outlet that I'm writing for. But uh, no, I I don't think I'm I'm not very good at what management consultants call reading the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think I'd be a very poor management consultant actually. No, I don't. I I'm, I'm rather, I'm rather self-centered, and I, I write it, and if people like it, that's fine. If they don't like it, that's fine too. Catherine, what about yourself? Do you have a clear picture of your audience when you're writing? Is that an important part of your creative process? I don't know if I, I can see particular faces, but I definitely see an audience there, and they are very important. I've gone back and read some of what I wrote, and I always, I always have the phrase, you know, readers, you know, readers this, readers that, and I notice that that's a right. mark. So, I do, I do often think that way. Yes, that must be how I think. <laughs> you know, when I when I go back and read my work, that that is how I think. And uh, yeah, one of the ways I think writing can go wrong is that you lose you lose touch, you know, with with an audience because. I mean, you're writing for somebody, presumably. I mean, we all write so that it will be read. I mean, a lot of us like to think that, you know, we're, we're very we're introverted and we don't necessarily have to have to talk to anybody. But I just don't think that's true. And, you know, nobody's obligated to read our work. And it's it's a privilege to get to write for a website like Countercurrent. And you do always want to have that sense of the reader in mind, and you don't want to be, you know, obsequious or, or kind of really censor yourself in a in a way that that will kind of like you know kiss up to your audience or anything like that. Uh, but you do want to. I don't know. It's it's just a personal style. I think so. I mm-hmm. do like to have that connection with the audience that I'm writing for. Yeah. Yeah. What about yourself, James? Do you uh, have a clear vision of the audience when you're composing? Uh, not really. Uh, but um, I do. Uh, I mean, I try to. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, most everything I write shows up on countercurrents. So I, I think uh, that I'm writing for a an audience that's intelligent, but not uh, specialists. So I uh, generally, right. the idea is that I, I have some, uh, <clears throat> I've read some interesting book and I think I should bring it to their attention and, uh, you know, try to explain reasonably simply, you know, why it's, why it's really interesting and, and 
you know, how it fits into this, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, you know, here's, here, you know, like for instance, the Lovecraft book, you know, is, you know, is, is, is if you like Lovecraft, and I think most people who read Countercurrents probably do, then uh, you should, you should read this book because it's really interesting. And by the way, it's, it's kind of interesting to see how, how he tries to portray Lovecraft. Lovecraft comes across as kind of like a sort of a, a, a dissident right kind of figure in a way, uh, who's uh, he's sort of like uh, the uh, the uh, uh, one of the first uh, trolls, really, <laughs> uh, which is how I understand his racist outbursts and so on. And, you know, the author is just amazed at how he he. Uh, you know, here's a typical dissident right figure. Uh, it turns out he's uh, he's married to a Jew and moves to New York. Well, well uh, and uh, he he blurts out all these racist things from time to time. Well, he's he's uh, he's sort of like you know an Elon Musk or uh, or one of, one of these other characters. Uh, so, in other words, I, I I try to make it relevant to them, and uh, you know, say that you'll you'll be interested in this. <clears throat> in terms of visualizing the audience, I'm reminded of. Uh, in Salinger's uh, Franny and Zoe, uh, Zoe is uh, trying to uh, convince Franny to, uh, uh, you know, dive back into life and so on. And he reminds her that when they were all, the whole family was on a radio show, it's a wise child. Uh, sometimes she would be recalcitrant and say, you know, I don't, I don't want to go on tonight. I, I don't want to perform. And the elder uh, brother, uh, Seymour, would say that uh, they had to do it for the fat lady. Uh, that they, they imagined there was a fat woman out in the Midwest somewhere sitting on her porch, sweating and, and eating watermelon or something and listening to the radio. And, and she was the audience. Uh -huh. Do it for the fat lady, Franny. Do it for the fat lady. And uh, so, yeah, that, uh, I'll, I'll go with that image. Then. <laughs> okay. I'm going to sort of say both to the question, do you write for yourself or do you have a particular vision of the audience? I'm going to put one foot on both sides of that fence firmly. Uh, actually, though, I, I, can, I can do that because the audience that I imagine is myself at an earlier age. I spent a great deal of time going down blind alleys, banging my head against walls, being uh, deceived about things, beating around the bushes, etc., and wishing that I had been able to read the kind of stuff that I write today because it would have saved me a lot of time. So I think about my younger self and I think about all the time that was wasted and I try and write things that when I was an undergraduate would have resonated with me, would have saved me time and gotten me further along in my intellectual development. And that's the audience that I think about. I really think about uh, what would I, when I was 20, been most benefited by? And, and I write to that person. So I, that's, that's how I envision my audience generally. And yeah, it's hard, though, to sustain writing when you throw your ideas out there and you know, you, you throw these pearls out there <laughs> and you hear a lot of grunting and squealing, uh, uh, you know, echoing through the internet, a lot of trolling, a lot of uh, vulgarity, a lot of dumb people, 
a lot of people who um, a lot of people who try and basically uh, bully you out of the intellectual world by creating a madhouse environment that that should never be your audience because if that's your audience you're going to give up there's a friend of mine american krogan who's taking a step back from writing and uh, producing videos and i get it and i and part of the reason is is that he's just so turned off by that audience the social media audience the people on telegram the people on twitter the people in the comment threads these people make you know our sphere a kind of madhouse environment that that sensitive and not just sensitive, but sensible people, people with taste and standards just want to uh, leave. That can't be your audience. If that is your audience, if that's your picture of the audience, if that's the uh, feedback you're getting from your work, you're going to be repulsed by it. So I try to ignore that stuff. And I think about what would have helped me when I was younger? How can I save other people time? You know, one of the One of the fake... Uh, false liberal psychological nostrums that we hear all the time is that you shouldn't parent your kids. That's terribly paternalistic. You should let them make their own mistakes. Like, hell no. You should not let people make their own mistakes. Do we have to reinvent mathematics? Do we have to reinvent the wheel? Do we have to go through the whole trial and error process that other people have gone through before? Why? That's just crazy. That, that's just an excuse for just giving up, throwing off the burden of, of nurturing the next generation. All of civilization consists of other people's mistakes that you are able to avoid. Uh, but when it comes to moral issues, you've got this liberal idea. Oh, no, you've got to let them make all their own mistakes. No, no, no. I don't want younger people to have to make all the same stupid mistakes that I made, and I want to save them time. And that's what civilization is. That's what mentorship is. That's what education is, is saving people time so that they can access the collective wisdom of civilization without having to reinvent it. So that, right. that, that's my, my, my goal. Me. Go ahead. I'm, I'm called away to domestic duties. Oh, well, thank John, we've gone for more than two hours and it's been uh, a great deal of fun. So thank you so much. Uh, okay. There's one last question. Can I just slip this one in? Will right. you ever retire from writing? No. <laughs> I, 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 I end as I begin with the, whichever Roman it was, I think it was Juvenal, who said that writing is a, is a disease. Not, it's not an art or a science, it's a disease. You, there's no cure for it. It's not a choice. Yeah, it's a destiny. Thank you, John. This has been a real pleasure. Very much appreciate it. And yeah, definitely. Thanks, John. So, Catherine, will you ever retire from writing? You're probably the youngest one on the podcast, so that's decades into the future. But is this something that you'll, will you ever set down your pen? You know, I, I can't say I'm not a professional writer like a lot of. A lot of the other writers on this this podcast are. I can say that I'm never going to retire from reading, which I think is the essential ingredient to writing, and mm -hmm. it's it's where I get a lot of my inspiration. Um, so, 
in that sense, no. And I think I'm always going to have something to say, especially if the world is the way that it is. And I don't think it's yeah. about to change anytime soon. Yeah. That's good. James, what about yourself? Will you ever retire from writing? Oh, I suppose not. Um, I suppose I might retire from publishing. Um, the, uh, you know, <clears throat> I, uh, like I was saying before, you know, I can't write anything until I, I get the title and the epigram and so on. So, you know, if, if uh, you know, thoughts will occur to me and uh, I'll, I'll feel the need to, you know, put them down on paper. The question is whether I finish it or not. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, if, if I were, you know, I were censored out of existence or uh, uh, if, uh, uh, the internet shut down and uh, so on and so on, I would probably continue to write, but I would not probably finish anything. <laughs> right. Uh, but I would continue to write stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, I probably wouldn't finish anything now if uh, I didn't have, you know, uh, Microsoft Word, which makes it easy to type stuff up and put in footnotes and so on in the internet that I can send manuscripts out and get them published in some form and, and stuff like that. So, you know, and, and something of an audience uh, and then a reason to, to put an end to things. But otherwise, uh, you know, I, I would just work on something and then get some other idea and work on that for a while and so on. You know, I'd be <clears throat> one of those people like uh, Kafka or Nietzsche. I don't mean to compare myself to them otherwise, but, but you know, with like big mounds of unpublished stuff after their deaths, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, they never even considered publishing. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, I would continue to write. Uh, but I wouldn't necessarily continue to publish. I mean, you know, at some point, if the audience seemed to disappear or something like that, or the government cracked down on everything, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I probably wouldn't publish things if the situation was such that uh, you could be sent to the gulag, <laughs> for instance. Right, right. You know, there, there would be negative, negative consequences that would be extreme enough that uh, that would dissuade me. But that's because I'm dissuadable. Uh, right. You know, so I, I don't have I have the compulsion to write, but not to finish anything. Right. Uh, so. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, that's what I would say. <laughs> well, that's what I say about that. Yeah, I am not going to retire from writing or reading or thinking, and they're all linked together. My brain might just sort of run down and, you know, I will be carried out feet first eventually. But there is. I'm not going to, <laughs> I'm not going to quit the intellectual life because there's just so much that I have to say. And as long as, as long as the world's full of crazy ideas and terrible policies and things that need correcting, things that need to be spoken out against, like, like, well, I'll, I'll give you an example. Something that I want to inveigh against is Tucker Carlson is now <laughs> doing a show about Coach Red Pill. Can you believe it? Okay. This is not the timeline that I want Tucker Carlson to be on. This is cringe, as the kids surely say. Surely there are better topics. Yeah, surely there are better topics. Uh, anyway, I, I'm not going to stop you know, reacting passionately to the world and having opinions. And so I'm going to continue writing until they carry me feet first out. So anyway, I think we've, we've gone on for more than two hours. I think it's been very enjoyable. 
James, how do people follow your work? Why they do what they should be doing anyway, which is uh, uh, going on to countercurrents every single day. Yeah, and absolutely. Eventually, uh, they'll, they'll see uh, one of my things uh, popping up. So, yeah. uh, and of course, yeah. they'll see many other excellent things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you have any presence on Facebook or other social media? Anymore. Not really, not really. Um, you know, since you were talking about Substack before, I, I was thinking of uh, uh, maybe uh, opening a Substack sort of thing at some point. Uh, but I've never really been a social media sort of person. You know, I'm not, not mm -hmm. on Twitter. I, I mean, technically I'm on Telegram, but I don't do anything on Telegram. Right. Uh, I forget who it was that somebody was saying, you know, they, they're, they're only on Twitter and Telegram because people send them things. Yeah. Or they need to look at something. So, so yeah, and apparently on Twitter or X now, you can't look at anything unless you actually sign up. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and so on. So, yeah, that's, that's really the only way to, to follow me. Uh, but uh, as I say is, you know, as long as there's uh, countercurrents, uh, you'll always be able to find me. Yeah. Wonderful. Catherine, tell us how people can follow your work. Well, I'm going to have to echo James. I'm just on <laughs> countercurrents. I'm just on countercurrents, and um, I don't really have much of a social media presence. Um, I do have a Gab account, uh, but I don't use it very much. Um, so it's 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 all due to to Greg Johnson and countercurrents, and, and that's where you can find me. So. <clears throat> I do. I do actually come to think of it. I do have some uh, some essays and things I put on uh, academia.edu, uh, <clears throat> just because I thought I would be like one of the cool kids. But uh, have that, <clears throat> and then they send me an email every now and then saying so and so has just read your paper or something like that, uh, which is uh, which is nice. Uh, <clears throat> as we were talking about academic stuff before, I, I think that it's, uh, the research shows that the average academic paper is read by three people or something like that. It's uh, it's absurd, yeah. So there's far more far more people reading things on countercurrents or even uh, reading the papers I put on uh, academia because uh, yeah, they, they get an email two or three times a week of people uh, for, you know notifying me so and so has uh, just read your paper and so on so uh and i'm sure you know thousands more must be reading it on countercurrents so uh, right that's 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 the happening place that's where things are going on yeah i i had an article that i was going to write but i just never wrote it called my my second academic career which was my brief academic career at academia.edu in 2020 oh. i put a number of uh pieces up on uh, academia.edu and about you know, I've done a lot of philosophical essays and sort of academic things, some weighty things. I took some of my weightier pieces and I <laughs> made PDFs and uploaded them to academia.edu. And after about a week, I got an email saying, your writings are in the top 10% of articles on academia.edu. And then the next day, I was in the top 5%. And the day <laughs> after that, the top 1%. And then uh, the top one-tenth of 1%. Uh, and then my account was closed down <laughs> and uh I wrote, the oxygen out of the room yeah and then i wrote to them and i asked why did you shut my account down and, okay. and uh you know I, I eventually uh basically the the word came back it was uh it was hate 
Uh, somebody <laughs> hated me. Uh, somebody hated my uh, my writings. Uh, specifically, one article went completely viral, which is my uh, my essay, Why Race is Not a Social Construct. Ah. That yeah. couldn't be allowed on academia.edu. Yeah. Uh, some things that I wrote about Leo Strauss uh, got a few people upset. Uh, and so, yeah, I got, uh, I had a brief meteoric ac second <laughs> academic career on academia.edu before I was deplatformed. Uh, it was well, very, more, very, more people, uh, more people read you during that period than would have ever read you in a conventional academic career, probably. Oh, absolutely. And of course, I didn't care that much about it uh, oh, yeah. because I had my own platform, but it was just a hoot. <laughs> you know, it was just an absolute hoot to see this stuff go uh, go viral. It's like, you're in the top one-tenth of one percent of articles. It's like, finally, finally, I'm an academic success. And then, like, this whole, you know. Yeah. Well, my, my, the, the articles I have up there are things that are, are too <clears throat> too long and inside baseball to appeal to countercurrents, but they're they're on you know Neville and, and New Thought topics, Neville and Evola, and mm. uh, and their relations and so on. So actually, you know, ac people who apparently are academics do find them and uh, mm -hmm. say, oh, I'm going, oh, I, I want to read this, and yeah. uh, and so on. So uh, it's uh, it's a good thing, but, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I want to thank you both for uh, being good sports and sharing your ideas on writing. I hope that there are some uh, aspiring writers out there who have benefited from this. And I know that this will be on Countercurrents and on Odyssey and DLive in, long into the future. And I hope people will find it through searches and listen to this again and again. And it'll provide some inspiration. So thank you very much. I, I really appreciate you being on. I really appreciate the donors, the commentators, uh, the moderator, and all of you wonderful people out there in the dark. And uh, we will be back next week with another episode of Countercurrents Radio. Okay. Bye, all. Thanks, Greg. Bye, -bye. Bye James. Bye.